Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today we welcome Abi Ahmed, Associate Dean of Students and Director of the Marcus Resource Center at Stanford. We are going to be talking about her background, her journey to Stanford, her interest in the intersection of religion and education, and her experiences running one of seven community centers at Stanford. Abi, it's such an honor to have you on the SASPod. How are you? It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm very well, recovering very nicely after my second dose of the vaccine. How are Congra you? Congratulations on the on the vaccine. Yes, I'm fine. Thank you. Um, can you start us off by telling us about yourself, whatever, whatever it is you'd like to share? Sure. Uh, well, there's a lot to share, but I'll try to I'll try to keep it brief. Um, so I'm ethnically I'm Pakistani. I, I was uh, born in the Middle East. I grew up in the United Arab Emirates in the UAE and different Emirates within that country. Um, lived there for 18 years. So all of my education, K-12, even undergrad, uh, I had all of that in the UAE. And then um, after I finished my undergrad, my parents and my younger sister were moving to California and I decided to move with them. And so I've now been in California for the past, oh gosh, it's been 15 years. So um how did you become, I know that you're working on a dissertation on religion and education, uh, fascinating topics to me. Um, how did you become interested in that and, and what's been your journey with, with that, with those topics? Right. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's been an interesting journey. Um, my undergraduate studies were actually in journalism. So I, I did not expect to land where I did, but I was always interested in education. Um, and growing up as a Pakistani Muslim in the UAE, where 50% of the, 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 the population was South Asian and 80% at that time were immigrants, mm -hmm. um, it was like I didn't feel sort of like, a, like an immigrant or someone standing out growing up there. And so religion was a thing for us, but not the thing. So it wasn't, it wasn't like, it wasn't set that magnified. And so we were just, you know, sort of going about our lives being, being all the things that we were without necessarily having um, put them under a microscope, which is different when you move uh, across continents to uh, a place like California um, or anywhere really in the, in, in, in America, where unless you are white Protestant Christian, then everything about you is sort of in some ways going to be heightened. Um, and so after moving here to California, I did work for a year in media relations um, for CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations. And I realized I was interested in grad school. 
I took a year out and went to get my master's in Islamic studies in Aberdeen. So of course, working for CARE certainly brought much sharper focus to issues of religion for me. And then when I did my master's in Islamic studies, I got interested in um, Islamic studies more broadly. After I moved back to California, I taught for six years at an Islamic school in the Bay Area. I taught English primarily, but I also taught Islamic studies for a couple of years. And that's when I really became interested in the intersection of religion and education because um, it was just really fascinating to me about, uh, what was really fascinating to me was how the work I was doing on the ground didn't necessarily kind of add up or match with some of the theoretical things that I was learning about Islamic educational philosophy, Islamic pedagogy, and that kind of uh, cemented, so to speak, my research questions and my research ideas, which eventually led me to pursue a PhD at Stanford. And so that's how I actually ended up at Stanford. I didn't start at Stanford as my position at the Marcus. I started as a a PhD student, which I still am and hoping to remove that title from from my signature at some point, because I just submitted my dissertation last week, and I'm hoping to um, defend it in a couple of weeks. That's incredible. Like, that's, that's, I feel any of the things that you do are like complete full-time all by themselves and that you were able to submit. Uh, Congratulations on that. Thank you. So you said you were teaching in an Islamic school in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you say more for whom are are the Islamic schools in the Bay Area? and the are, they school, are they schools that are Islamic or are they like two hour add-ons after school? Are they yeah. full K-12? Paint a picture for me. Sure, sure. Um, there, are, there are different kinds of Islamic schools. So there's your typical weekend Islamic schools, right? Which are like your Sunday schools. Right. Um, and so, uh, and they also happen on, the Muslim versions of those also happen on Saturday. So they're also Saturday schools. Um, and so those, I would I would maybe put in the add-on category uh, because you know the the kids who attend these schools go to their regular public schools during the week and then on the weekend they attend the Islamic schools. There's also after-school programs that uh, that some mosques and community centers do during the week and so those can be add-on as well but there are also several full-time Islamic schools. Um, Some of them are K through eight Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, or actually pre-K through eight, you can even start at pre-K. Um, and then some of them are, are, a couple of them are high schools. Um, and so, so there are, there, there's different versions on like, kind of like, you know, choose your own adventure sort of thing, uh, depending on how, what level of uh, I- immersion parents want for their children um, in terms of Islamic education. And in the Bay Area, there's, you know, there's, there's really different kinds. There's schools that kind of prioritize academics and test scores that are accredited. There's schools that prioritize the religion aspect of it over the academics. And so they f- kind of focus more so on spirituality. There's schools that try to do both. Um, and so it depends on, again, you know, where, what you want for your child. Uh, and these are different from the Clara Muhammad 
schools that were established that were that are the actually the original Islamic schools in America because they were established in the 1930s uh, by the nation but what was then the nation of Islam and then later kind of converted to the Clara Muhammad schools after um, that group aligned with the mo more Islamic orthodoxy um, and there the Clara Muhammad schools are kind of like a cluster of schools they're like sp spread all over the country that one of the more popular ones is Atlanta Georgia and therefore the black you know Muslim community the indigenous black Muslim community and have been around longer than the immigrant schools that which was what I was talking about earlier and so um so in for, for instance the bay area is there um do the do the african-american community attend the islamic schools that may be more aimed or have been set up by immigrants from other parts of the world or, or do they tend to be quite separate communities there isn't an official to my knowledge i could be wrong because i i have my it's been it's been a few years since i kind of been been kept a pulse on islamic schools my my research interests have, have started kind of since progressed to religion in higher ed but you know to my knowledge as last i checked there isn't a there isn't a, a, an islamic school in the bay area that is specifically for the african-american indigenous community uh, a couple of schools that i'm very well familiar with had um some students who attended. I remember uh, there's there's a school in a free in Fremont, a high school where there's a student who would actually come from San Francisco to attend that school, an African American Muslim student. And so there is a little bit of kind of mixing and overlap, but um, to my knowledge, there isn't one specifically for the African American Indigenous community. Okay, all right, oh, that's interesting. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, let us move a little bit more to Stanford. Um, I think uh, people sometimes get confused between a community center that appears to be grounded in a religious identity, uh, such as Marcus and the Office of Religious Life. Uh, so how is Marcus different and, and what sets you apart and what's your vision in that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And uh, it's, it's a really, it, you've actually hit on the the nail on the head because when people ask what the Marcas is and what what it does I always try to answer them by telling them what it does not do <laughs> and so and so in, so in so in the in distinguishing it from the office of religious life which is by the way now the office of religious and spiritual life Correct. Um, I um, no it's fine um, it, 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 it that's actually a, a really helpful point of departure um, because you know what I tell people that is that we 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 are a obviously a center that um, sent that 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 prioritizes the experience of Muslim students and we our programming is around Islam and Islamic culture and Mus and Muslim experiences we actually don't undertake any religious ritual programming quote unquote you know official ritual programming so that for example we don't we don't um, oversee the Friday prayer, for example, right? Um, we don't offer pastoral care. Someone comes to us with a question about some kind of legal, thick jurisprudential opinion on, on Islamic issues, we will refer them to the Office of Religious and Spiritual Life or the Muslim chaplain um, uh, at, at, at Stanford. So, um, so that's something that we actually don't do. Having said that, it's really important for, for me to emphasize that a Muslim identity for a lot of students includes 
a multitude of different facets, uh, all the way from you know cultural, social justice, political, mental health, wellness, aesthetic, uh, art. Right, people are Muslim and are choose to be Muslim or want to experience being Muslim in ways other than are than than are just explicitly religious. Um, and it's it's really it's really funny for me to make that distinction between the religious and the non-religious because you know that's you know there's there's a lot I can say about that and I do in my dissertation. But just to kind of go back to your question, so what the Marcas does is we do all the kinds all the programming around uh, Muslim culture, uh, Islam anti-Islamophobia trainings, uh, mental health and wellness within the Muslim community. Uh, Islamic art, uh, aesthetics, and we also serve students and community that is not Muslim, but is still interested in Islam and Muslim experiences, or students who identify with Muslim experiences because they come from geographical regions where there is a significant Muslim majority, um, or even a significant Muslim minority, like <laughs> India, right? And so, uh, so we do we do see a lot of students. Who, you know, we can think about like. Egyptian Coptic Christians, for example, right? Or, um, you know, Sikh Indians who come and use our space, but just because, you know, it, the culture is familiar to them, the the, the ambiance, the programming is familiar to them and they find themselves more at home. So we, we're kind of more broader in terms of our programming and our, and our community in that way. Does that lead to tension or do you feel that it's, that it's set out clearly enough that people understand that's what Marcus is for? Does the does what lead to the tension? inclusivity, the broad the broad interpretation of what what Muslim life means? You know, it there's a couple of things that we try to accomplish with that very uh, explicit goal. One is that we want to unite Muslim students across difference, right? And so, and and that difference could happen across an ethnic and racial identity, right? So. Arab versus non-Arab, for example, right? right? right. Uh, African versus um, South Asian, right? And so we try to we try to unite across that identity. It could also obviously happen, uh, you know, the differences could be across other identity markers like gender or interpretation of religion, right? In mm -hmm. terms of orthodoxy or, uh, or or progressivism and so on and so forth. So we try to kind of um, create programming that addresses. Um, not necessarily all of the needs all of the time, but most of the needs most of the time, right? And so that way we try to be as inclusive as possible in terms of including people who are not Muslim, but are still interested. So like, you know, students, other students from who are, who are Sikh or, or Christians or identify as not religious, but are still interested. We haven't actually ever seen any um, uh, tension or conflict. Um, people feel very welcomed and comfortable in our space. One of our flagship programs is our afternoon chai that we have every Tuesday when we are on campus. Um, and, and we try to rotate the kind of chai that we serve <laughs> so to, to keep the unity across difference, right? And so that's, you know, sometimes it's, you know, chai, so it's Arab, and sometimes it's, you know, chai in that it's herbal and, you know, and, and those kind of things. 
I love that. They're the, the politics of tea. That's a, right. a whole yeah. another topic. Yes. Somebody uh, should do a dissertation on that if, if it hasn't been done already. <laughs> I, I imagine it may be out there. We could we can look it up. So um you you mentioned creating an inclusive space, and then you also mentioned that things are happening happening virtually, um, obviously because of the pandemic. So can you walk us through, I just want to zoom in a little bit. Can you walk us through some of the programming that you used to do on campus that you have done virtually, that you're going to do virtually, and then that you're hoping to do uh, once we're fully back on campus? So four, four, four timelines. Right, yeah. I mean, so when I started this job, I started this job just as lockdown happened. So my entire tenure in this position has been in remote. For, fortunately, I've been around Stanford, so I know the kind of programming that, that we used to do on campus. And we've been able to actually transfer most of that to a virtual space. Um, the first thing that we did when lockdown happened was launch a, a, a an alternate website that we call the Digital Marcas. Um, and I give all of the credit to the students for coming up. So, so we do have student staff. I mean, there's there's two of us on in, in the center as professional staff. There's me and then there's Cassie, who's been around the Marcus longer and your listeners might certainly be more familiar with her um, uh, as well. And so, but then we also have student staff. And so when we went into lockdown, there was a, there was a, a creative and innovative and, and really um, uh, sort of, um, generous shift to to launching this digital markers, and the students did that all on their own. Uh, so we we were able to parallel our uh, buckets, so to speak, of programming on the digital markers, and then we uh, kind of the afternoon chai, for example, that I was talking about, became after Zoom chai, right? <laughs> and and so we were able to do a lot of that. We've been, another one of our flagship programming is uh, our Chai Chats, where we invite different speakers to talk about uh, political issues, social justice issues, or just really is any, any issues that are of interest, uh, current interest to our community. We were able to do that. In some ways, the virtual space has been, has, has given us more access to more speakers because we don't have to actually bring them to campus, right? And so we've been able to do all of that um, virtually. One thing that I want to highlight that we're really proud of that we did last year uh, was a kind of document uh, community experiences of quarantine. Um, and we called it the Community Creative Archive. Again, very much student-led. And it, it, if you go on our website, digitalmarkas.org, you'll see it on there where you know students in the community have submitted different art forms, whether it's a piece of music or it's a, a painting or some calligraphy on you know what's going on for them as because quarantine was certainly you know now it's everybody's like oh my god quarantine they're used to it but at that, that time it was new right um and and so you'll see that that archive document you know the 10 10 pieces i think um the experiences of the community so we've i think as a center as a community we've done a really really impressive job of um of doing the virtual shift um and of course we're really excited that we could 
come back to campus. Um, we're, we're not open right now. I know students are back, but we're not open right now in the spring quarter. Uh, probably not also for summer, but uh, definitely hoping to be back in the fall. Um, and so we're hoping to kind of take, kind of revive some of the things we were doing on campus um, as well. Um, and, and the last thing I'll say is, I think the most challenging thing to do virtually was Ramadan. Mm -hmm. um, and Ramadan is coming up again next week, uh, uh, April 12th or 13th, I think. And so last year, because it, Ramadan kind of just happened right as quarantine happened, not too long after, we did the best we could with Zoom. But this year, because we were prepared for and we learned all the lessons that we did from last year's quote unquote virtual Ramadan, this year we've actually uh, in collaboration with the Graduate School of Education and their digital learning, um, I'm totally gonna mess up their name, but they have a digital learning initiative that um, uh, it, that has helped us and the ORSL and the Muslim Student U Union launch a virtual Ramadan uh, page, a landing page where people can go because you know not everybody is back on campus. Some students will still be experiencing Ramadan virtually, and so we've we've launched we're launching that this week actually. Um, to, to where they can go and, and find out all the programming that's going on, both virtually and on campus, and then find ways to connect with people in the same time zones, maybe have iftar together. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I could keep going on and on, but I think I think that's a that's a pretty good overview of our programming, both virtually and not virtually. Thank you. That's a fantastic overview. Um, we will make sure that we link to these uh, the pages that you described so people can just click and, and find them. Um, so you mentioned that in some ways, the virtual programming can be a little easier because you can bring speakers from all over the world, kind of dependent on time zone. And we've certainly found that in the center as well. And, and I'm pretty sure that we're going to continue um, an element of virtual programming even when campus right. has opened up. Do you plan to do the same? I, I want to say tentatively, yes, be, just because we haven't actually fleshed it out completely, but I, I think it certainly makes sense. I think everybody's reevaluating sort of what is possible, right, given now this entire year of being online and on Zoom. And I think that, you know, I think there's definitely something to be said about having more and easier and certainly cheaper access to resources virtually, right? Um, and so uh, I, I, I'm gonna say tentatively, yes, we, we probably will try to do that. But having said that, there's the physical space of our center is such an important part of community building for us. And you know, it's, it's something that we know that we're missing and I'm sure the students are missing. And so, you know, not, there's, there's absolutely nothing that can replace that, but that doesn't mean that we can, for example, have, you know, one chai chat or something that's that where a speaker kind of zooms in, you know, from, from somewhere versus inviting them. So, I mean, certainly the possibilities are endless. Yeah, no, I think there's going to be a lot of hybrid models and I, I um, yeah, I mean, you can think of a model where the people are together, but the speaker is zoomed in. I, um, I very much uh, love the inclusivity of the virtual environment that uh, people don't have to worry about childcare and maybe mobility issues they have uh, in order to come and give a lecture. They can, right. I think we're all so comfortable. It's, it's, yeah, we've learned a lot, right? About what we can, yeah. what we can do and what we can um, 
work with. So um, our most recent podcast uh, featured Dr. Rani Awad. And uh, as you know, she works on mental health in the Muslim community. Um, so this is a, a, a good segue. I don't want to say beautiful because the topic is anything but. Um, I want to talk to you about Islamophobia and um, how, how do you see Islamophobia as um, uh, impacting your work, the well-being of our students, and what has been the effect of COVID, if any? Um, so, I mean, there's is, Islamophobia is, first of all, I, I just want to say, I want to preface my comments on Islamophobia by saying that that is not my favorite term. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. What is a preferred term? I'm um, always up yeah, for I mean, updating I, my terminology. No, I mean, I know that that's the term that is most common and I certainly use it, but I think it, 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 it's, it doesn't necessarily reflect um, the totality of the transgressions or the aggressions that happen against uh, Muslim identities, and so you know, the, in recent years, there's there's been a move to kind of maybe refer to it as, as anti-Muslim racism, anti-Muslim prejudice, um, and you know, so I mean, I, I don't, I actually, it's, it, I don't have an answer to what it, what would be the best term, but I just feel like Islamophobia doesn't fully capture um, the range of. Um, uh, experiences that people go through when uh, when they're discriminated against or when they experience microaggressions, for example. I so thank you so much for pointing that out. I, I got into the habit, and then maybe I lost it, I'm not sure now, of, um, of using um, homo and trans antagonism as opposed to homo and trans phobia, because also phobia is kind of an ableist word, and it assumes there's something you can't, you know, you can't help yourself when somebody right. has a phobia. Right. Right. Uh, this is yeah, not about exactly. having a, a, a bad attitude. It's like you can't control that. It's the whole point of a phobia. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, exactly. And even when it, when we say Islamophobia, like it, it, the term literally implies that people are afraid of Islam, right? right? Kind of, you know, maybe some of them are, but I really think that there's there's more to it than just that, and it's not as you know, it's not as it's like you said, it's not as innocent or sort of like benign in terms of being an out of control. I mean, sometimes, sometimes, in fact, a lot of times, it's very much volitional and intentional. And, and correct, so, yes, yeah. yes. So anti-Muslim racism. I mean, as you say, there's no ideal term, but I think that perhaps gets closer. Okay, so let me reframe. Uh, how has anti-Muslim racism impacted your work, and how has that been uh, affected by the pandemic? Right. I mean, I think that, you know, there's the, so like, so, so anti-Muslim racism, anti-Muslim prejudice, you know, discrimination against Muslims or Islamophobia, you know, that's kind of like a factor that's, that's kind of, it's an ever, it's a pervasive factor. It goes up and down depending on who's in office and when elections are happening. Right. Uh, but, but, you know, it's something that, you know, we actively and proactively actually, I should say, aim to address. And so a few years ago, the Marcas received a grant to conduct um, what are what are called anti-Islamophobia trainings, but you can refer to them as you know in whatever terms we want, right? Um, and 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 we started doing them. Uh, I want to say in 2017 or 2018 for the Stanford campus. And so the trainings basically kind of are on two fronts, where we train, we we conduct workshops or um, uh, discussions with Muslims, Muslim students mostly, but also Muslim staff, Muslim faculty, if, if so, if they want to join about resilience. 
And then we also do trainings and workshops for faculty, staff, and allies on uh, and about Muslims and Islam too. So sort of like, kind of like the, you know, the, the, the target population, uh, as well as the allies and people who might, you know, benefit from learning about Muslims and how to address the Muslim experience on campus. And, and they're very much Stanford specific. So we try to curate those trainings to the Stanford context. Uh, because, you know, there's a ton of workshops and materials that people can get online and even you know there's organizations that do those professional trains but what we really wanted to do was make them specific to the Stanford community so that the action piece of that would be specific to our community as well and so we've been doing those for years typically we hire a graduate student to um, uh, execute those trainings uh, I know because I was the first one hired to do that years ago um, and then since me since I've since my position and then I uh, left uh, there's been two others and so currently we have a medical school student who's doing those trainings he's done a fabulous job of um, uh, adapting them to a virtual space um, and so and he's working we're also working with uh, admissions to determine um, you know, sort of just kind of widening their perspective about what they might want to consider should they receive a Muslim applicant, for example, right, um, in terms of um, uh, admitting them or recruiting or even recruiting more Muslims to, to come to Stanford. We're not saying that, you know, we're suddenly we're going to see an outpouring of, of Muslims at Stanford, but we're, what we're trying to say is just kind of, kind of uh, get staff and professionals to be more aware of cues or, or what to look for uh, in that sense. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's some of, some of the kind of work that we do that, that, that aims to proactively uh, address some of these issues. Now, sometimes we're in a position also to react to um, speakers that might be invited to campus who are um, Islamophobic or anti-Muslim or who whose rhetoric may be uh, indicative of that kind of prejudice um, and so so obviously we'll be in a position to react to that and then we you know we try to determine and kind of collaborate with other campus partners and the students of course to see what might be an appropriate response if any um, and so we do certainly uh, do that as well. Um, mm. Super interesting. So it, it kind of there's a, a pastoral care uh, component, even though that's not officially part of what you do, but I'm, that's going to be there that that can't not be there, I imagine. And then kind of preventative training, I say that kind of in, uh, in air quotes, uh, and then perhaps some semi political work in terms of creating a space to respond. It's a lot. You do a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It it is. I mean, I think I think the pastoral care definitely goes through explicit pastoral care. Definitely happens through ORSL or uh, CAPS, the the Counseling and Psychological Services, uh, right? And we do have a CAPS liaison for our community um, as well. And so you know, we always tell students that even if we can't help you, we certainly can direct you to someone who can. Um, in, in that respect. And so in that sense, we're definitely a great resource. But it, yeah, in terms of, you know, put more, more political uh, uh, responses, uh, more activist related responses, um, 
helping other campus partners that are kind of higher up than us craft statements mm -hmm. about some of those events, right? And so, so we do work on those fronts for sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. Wow, okay. Um, to wrap up, Abia, I wanna ask you <laughs> the million dollar question. Um, how has, you finished your dissertation last week? I'm just <laughs> so excited for you. Um, how has your, uh, research informed your work at Marcus and vice vice versa. And, and I'm going to give you like three minutes. <laughs> oh my God. I imagine you could talk about that for an hour. Okay, you can have five minutes, but you can't have an hour. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, that's good because, you know, when we're, when we're a kind of uh, being trained to write our dissertation proposal, we always like, you know, we have to come up with the elevator pitch. Yeah. And so, you know, this, this, this might be my, you know, my test, the test of that. Okay, so my dissertation's about, it's about, it's about religion and higher education, but it's a, it's a story of Muslim students in higher education, and it uses Muslim students as a case to critique the standard narratives of religion and secularity in higher education because uh, I'm primarily arguing that the categories of religion and secularity have been heavily influenced and continue to be influenced by a white Protestant Christian uh, understanding and formation yeah. and that we universally apply those categories across uh, religious minorities and religious groups and, and non-religious groups, right? And assume that everybody experiences religion and secularity in the same way. Mm -hmm. And so what I do is I, I spent three years doing ethnographic work and interviews and participant observation on Muslim students um, uh, at, at, at a campus. And I try to use their experience to critique some of those narratives and also to show how some how sometimes, you know, the 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 ideological apparatus of religion and secularity at institution is so pervasive that it allows the institution to even recruit Muslim identities and Muslim Muslimness as a way to further like secular liberal pluralistic goals without considering whether or not that population itself is benefiting from those activities. Um, and so, so that's in a very, very, very small nutshell, my dissertation. Uh, and how that informs my work is because, you know, the Marcos is part of a, a certainly one of the, the, you know, the premier elite universities in the country where, you know, and, and in fact, it's one of its kind um, where, I, you know, the, the, the position and the center and working in student affairs and working with students allows me to kind of, you know, apply some of the things that I've written about and thought about and see how it might be different Right, how we might break some of that religion and secular binary, for example, right? Um, you know, how we might try to think about, um, you know, uniting across difference, like I said, right? And how, you know, even, you know, we talk about Islamophobia and anti Muslim racism, thinking about other ways that Muslims are marginalized. Uh, that might not be as obvious because we talk about, you know, hegemonies when it comes to race and gender, right? But we don't necessarily talk about hegemonies when it comes to religion. So maybe mm -hmm. just being aware of like, you know, what is the hegemony when it comes to religion and how can we try to uh, understand that, you know, a Muslim student population, which is very much a religio-racial identity, right? We can't separate race from it. How is that impacted by these multiple hegemonies and what, what we, what we might difference? So, uh, you know, caveat, you know, I don't have the answers, uh, all the answers, but it's certainly hoping to, you know, 
take a step there. And that's why, you know, I'd like to, I'm really glad actually to be in this position because it allows me to be uh, what I call a scholar practitioner to be, to practice some of the things that I've written and thought about. Thank you so much. Well, we're certainly lucky to have you um, at the market. I'm uh, so delighted that you were able to make time for us today. Thank you so much for being on the SASPod. It's been lovely and a true pleasure. And, uh, and I hope we get to chat again soon. Uh, we will, I am sure, and hopefully on campus when I'm going to uh, drop in for Chai and find out what Chai week we're in. Great. I also want to thank Soham Shiva for creating the music for the intro and outro of the SAS pod and Simrat Matharu for doing the post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.